3. Event of profound importance took place in Philadelphia. This was the signing of the Declaration of Independence by the Continental Congress. Up to the summer of 1776, it was for their rights as freeborn Englishmen that the colonists had been fighting. But now that King George was sending thousands of soldiers to force them to give up these rights, which were as dear to them as their own lives, they said, We will cut ourselves off from England. We will make our own laws. We will levy our own taxes. We will manage our affairs in our own way. We will declare our independence. So they appointed a committee, two of whom were Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, to draw up the Declaration of Independence. This was signed July 4, 1776. It was a great day in American history, and worthy of celebration. After that, the 13 colonies became states, and each organized its own government. This act, no doubt, gave Washington good heart for the difficult work he had in hand, but the task itself was no easier. While he was waiting at New York for the enemy's attack, he had only an ill-assorted army of about 18,000 men to meet them. General Howe, who soon arrived, had 30,000 men and a large fleet as well, yet Washington pluckily made plans to defend the city, when Brooklyn Heights, on Long Island, had been fortified, he sent General Putnam with half the army across East River to occupy them, on August 27th General Howe, with something like 20,000 men, attacked a part of these forces and defeated them, if he had attacked the remainder at once, he might have captured the full half of the army under Putnam's command and even Washington himself who, during the heat of the battle, had crossed over from New York, but, as we have seen, the British were apt to put off till tomorrow, and very fortunate it was for the Americans, possibly General Howe could have ended the war at this time if he had continued his attack, but of course he did not know that the Americans were going to escape, any more than he had known that they were going to capture Boston, his men had fought hard at the end of a long night march and needed rest, besides, he felt so sure of making an easy capture of the remainder of the army that there was no need of haste, for how could the Americans get away? Did not the British fleet have them so close under its nose that it could easily get between them and New York and make escape impossible? This all seemed so clear to the easy-going general how that with good conscience he gave his tired men a rest after the battle on the 27th. On the 28th a heavy rain fell, and on the 29th a dense fog covered the island but before midday of the 29th, some American officers riding down toward the shore noticed an unusual stir in the British fleet. Boats were going to and fro as if carrying orders. It looks as if the English vessels may soon sail up between New York and Long Island and cut off our retreat, said these officers to Washington. The situation was perilous. At once Washington gave orders to secure all the boats possible, in order to attempt escape during the night. It was a desperate undertaking. There were 10,000 men to be taken across, and the width of the river at the point of crossing was nearly a mile. It would hardly seem possible that such a movement could be made in a single night without being discovered by the British troops, who were lying in camp within gunshot of the retreating Americans. But that which seemed impossible was done, for the army was transferred in safety. The night must have been a long and anxious one for Washington who stayed at his post of duty on the Long Island shore until the last boatload had pushed off. The retreat was as brilliant as it was daring, and it saved the American cause, but even after he had saved his army from capture and once more outwitted the British, the situation was still one of great danger. No sooner had the Americans made their perilous escape from Long Island than the British seized Brooklyn Heights, so just across the river from New York were the British troops, 
and just below them in the harbor lay the British fleet, the heroic Nathan Hale with forces so unequal, a single and wise movement might bring disaster, if only Washington could learn the plans of the British, the only way to do this was to send a spy over into their camp, he called for a volunteer to go inside the enemy's line and get information, now, you know that spying is dangerous business, for if captured the man will be hanged, and none but a brave man will undertake it, Probably many of you boys and girls know the name of the hero whom Washington selected for this delicate and dangerous task. It was Nathan Hale. Perhaps you ask why he was chosen, and why he was willing to go. We can answer those questions best by finding out something about his life. Nathan Hale was born in Coventry, a little town in Connecticut, in 1755. His parents, who were very religious people, had taught him to be always honest, brave, and loyal. Nathan was bright in school and fond of books. He was also fond of play. Although he was not very strong as a small boy, he grew sturdy and healthy by joining in the sports of the other boys. They liked him, because, like George Washington, he always played fair. Later he went to a Yale college, where he studied hard but yet had time for fun. He became a fine athlete, tall, and well-built. He sang well and his gentlemanly manner and thoughtfulness of others made him beloved by all who knew him. After he left college, he taught school with much success, being respected and loved by his pupils. He was teaching in New London, Connecticut, when the Revolutionary War broke out. He felt sorry to leave his school, but believing his country needed the service of every patriotic man, he joined the army and was made a captain. When he learned that his commander needed a spy, he said, I am ready to go send me. He was only 21, hardly more than a boy, yet he knew the danger, and although life was very dear to him he loved his country more than his own life. His noble bearing and grace of manner might easily permit him to pass as a loyalist. That island in American who sympathized with England there were many such in the British camp and Washington accepted him for the mission. He dressed himself like a schoolmaster, so that the British would not suspect that he was an American soldier. Then, Entering the enemy's lines, he visited all the camps, took notes, and made sketches of the fortifications, hiding the papers in the soles of his shoes. He was just about returning when he was captured, the papers being found upon him. He was condemned to be hanged as a spy before sunrise the next morning. The marshal who guarded him that night was a cruel man. He would not allow his prisoner to have a Bible, and even tore in pieces before his eyes the farewell letters which the young spy had written to his mother and friends but Nathan Hale was not afraid to die, and held himself calm and steady to the end, looking down upon the few soldiers who were standing nearby as he went to his death. He said, I only regret that I had but one life to lose for my country. All honor to this brave and true young patriot. A time of trial for Washington but the death of Nathan Hale was only one of the hard things Washington had to bear in this trying year of 1776. We have seen that when the Americans left the Long Island shore, the British promptly occupied it. On Brooklyn Heights they planted their cannon, commanding New York. So Washington had to withdraw, and he retreated northward to White Plains, stubbornly contesting every inch of ground. In the fighting of the next two months the Americans lost heavily. Two forts on the Hudson River with 3,000 men were captured by the British. The outlook was gloomy enough, and it was well for the Americans that they could not foresee the even more trying events that were to follow. In order to save himself and his men from the enemy, Washington had to retreat once more, this time across New Jersey toward Philadelphia, with the British Army. 
in every way stronger than his own, close upon him, it was a race for life, sometimes there was only a burning bridge, which the rear guard of the Americans had set on fire, between the fleeing forces and the pursuing army, to make things worse, Washington saw his own army becoming smaller every day, because the men whose term of enlistment had expired were leaving to go to their homes, when he reached the Delaware River he had barely 3,000 men left, here again Washington showed a master stroke of genius, having collected boats for 70 miles along the river, he succeeded in getting his army safely across at a place a little above Trenton, as the British had no boats, they had to come to a halt, in their usual easy way, they decided to wait until the river should freeze, when as they thought they would cross in triumph and make a speedy capture of Philadelphia, to most people in England and in America alike, the early downfall of the American cause seemed certain, General Cornwallis was so sure that the war would soon come to an end that he had already packed some of his luggage and sent it to the ship in which he expected to return to England, but Washington had no thought of giving up the struggle, others might say, it's of no use to fight against such heavy odds, General Washington was not that kind of man, he faced the dark outlook with all his courage and energy, full of faith in the cause for which he was willing to die. He watched eagerly for the opportunity to turn suddenly upon his overconfident enemy and strike a heavy blow. The victory at Trenton such an opportunity came soon. A body of British troops, made up of Hessians or Germans mainly from Hess Castle, hired as soldiers by King George, was stationed at Trenton, and Washington planned to surprise them on Christmas night, when, as he knew, it was their custom to hold a feast and revel. With 2,400 picked men he prepared to cross the Delaware River at a point nine miles above Trenton. The ground was white with snow, and the weather was bitterly cold. As the soldiers marched to the place of crossing, some of them whose feet were almost bare left bloody footprints along the route. At sunset the troops began to cross. It was a terrible night. Angry gusts of wind, and great blocks of ice swept along by the swift current, threatened every moment to dash in pieces the frail boats. From the Trenton side of the river, General Knox, who had been sent ahead by Washington, loudly shouted to let the struggling boatmen know where to land. For ten hours boatload after boatload of men made the dangerous crossing. A long, long night this must have been to Washington, as he stood in the midst of the wild storm, anxious, yet hopeful that the next day would bring him victory. It was not until four in the morning that the already weary men were in line to march. Trenton was nine miles away and a fearful storm of snow and sleep beat fiercely upon them as they advanced, yet they pushed forward, surely such courage and hardihood deserved its reward, the Hessians, sleeping heavily after their night's feasting, were quite unaware of the approaching army, about sunrise they were surprised and most of them easily captured after a brief struggle, like a gleam of light in the darkness, news of this victory shot through the colonies, it brought hope to every patriot heart, the British were amazed at the daring feat, and Cornwallis decided not to leave America for a time. Instead, he advanced with a large force upon Trenton, hoping to capture Washington's army there. That nightfall, January 2, 1777, he took his stand on the farther side of a small creek, near Trenton, and thought he had Washington in a trap. At last, said Cornwallis, we have run down the old fox, and we will bag him in the morning, in the morning again. But Washington was too sly a fox for Cornwallis to bag. During the night he led his army around Cornwallis's camp and, pushing on to Princeton, defeated the rear guard, which had not yet joined the main body. 
He then retired in safety to his winter quarters among the hills about Morristown. During this fateful campaign Washington had handled his army in a masterly way. He had begun with bitter defeat, he had ended with glorious victory. The Americans now felt that their cause was by no means hopeless. It was well that they had this encouragement. For the year that began with the Battle of Princeton 1777 was to test their courage and loyalty to the uttermost. The Urgoyanese invasion it had become plain to the British that if they could get control of the Hudson River, thus cutting off New England from the other states, they could so weaken the Americans as to make their defeat easy. So they adopted this plan, Burwine with nearly 8,000 men was to march from Canada, by way of Lake Champlain and Fort Edward, to Albany, where he was to meet a small force of British, who also were to come from Canada by way of the Mohawk Valley, the main army of 18,000 men under General Howe, was expected to sail up the Hudson from New York. They believed that this plan could be easily carried out and would soon bring the war to a close, and their plan might have succeeded if General Howe had done his part. Let us see what happened. Howe thought that before going up the river to meet and help Burwine, he would just march across New Jersey and capture Philadelphia. This, however, was not so easy as he had expected it to be. Washington's army was in his pathway, and, not caring to fight his way across, he returned to New York and tried another route, sailing with his army to Chesapeake Bay. The voyage took two months, much longer than he expected. When at length he landed and advanced toward Philadelphia, he was again thwarted. Washington's army grimly fronted him at Brandywine Creek, and a battle had to be fought. The Americans were defeated, it is true, but Washington handled his army with such skill that it took out two weeks to reach Philadelphia which was only 26 miles away from the field of battle. Howe was thus kept busy by Washington until it was too late for him to send help to Burwine. Moreover, Burwine was disappointed also in the help which he had expected from the Mohawk Valley, for the army which was to come from that direction had been forced to a retreat to Canada almost before reaching the valley at all. Burwine was now in a hard place. The Americans were in front of him, blocking his way, and also behind him preventing him from retreating or from getting powder and other greatly needed supplies from Canada. He could move in neither direction, thus left in the lurch by those from whom he expected aid and penating by the Americans. There was nothing for him to do but fight or give up, like a good soldier, he thought, and the result was two battles near Saratoga and the defeat of the British. In the end Burwine had to surrender his entire army of 6,000 regular troops October 17, 1777. Such was the way in which the British plan worked out. Of course the result was a great blow to England. On the other hand, the victory was a great cause of joy to the Americans. It made hope stronger at home, it won confidence abroad. France had been watching closely to see whether the Americans were likely to win in their struggle, before aiding them openly. Now she was ready to do so, and was quite willing to make a treaty with them, even though such a course should lead to a war with England, to bring about this treaty with France. Benjamin Franklin did more than any other man, after signing the Declaration of Independence and you will remember that he was a member of the committee appointed to draft that great state paper he went to France to secure aid for the American cause, he must have been a quaint figure at the French court, his plain hair and plain cloth coat contrasting strangely with the fashion and elegance about him, yet this simple heart man was welcomed by the French people, who gave feasts and parades in his honor and displayed his picture in public places. By his personal influence he did very much to secure the aid which France gave us. 
Lafayette joins the American army even before an open treaty was signed France had secretly helped the cause of the Americans, she had sent them money and army supplies and, besides this, able Frenchmen had come across the Atlantic to join the American army, the most noted of these was the Marquis de Lafayette, the circumstances under which he came were quite romantic, Lafayette was but 19 when he heard for the first time at a dinner party the story of the American people fighting for their liberty. It interested and deeply moved him, for in his own land a desire for freedom had been growing, and he had been in sympathy with it. Now he made it his business to find out more about this war, and then he quickly decided to help all he could. He belonged to one of the noblest families of France, and was very wealthy. He had a young wife and a baby, whom he regretted to leave, but he believed that his duty called him to join the cause of freedom. His wife was proud of the lofty purpose of her noble husband and encouraged him to carry out his plan, but Lafayette found it very hard to get away, for his family was one of influence, his relatives and also the men in power were very angry when he made known his purpose, and they tried to prevent his going, but he bought a ship with his own money and loaded it with army supplies, then, disguising himself as a post boy, he arrived at the coast without being found out, after a long, tiresome voyage he reached the United States and went to Philadelphia, their Congress gave him the rank of Major General, but in accepting it Lafayette asked that he might serve without pay. A warm friendship at once sprang up between Washington and the young Frenchman, and a feeling of confidence as between father and son. The older man made the young Major General a member of his military family, and Lafayette was always proud to serve his chief. He spent his money freely and risked his life to help the cause of American liberty. We can never forget his unselfish service. At the close of the year 1777 Washington took his army to a strong position among the hills at Valley Forge, about 20 miles northwest of Philadelphia, there to spend the winter. It was a period of intense suffering. Sometimes the soldiers went for days without bread. For some days past, wrote Washington, there has been little less than famine in the camp. Most of the soldiers were in rags. Only a few had bed clothing. Many had to sit by the fire all night to keep warm and some of the sick soldiers were without beds or even loose straw to lie upon. Nearly 3,000 of the men were barefoot in the severe winter weather, and many had frozen feet because of the lack of shoes. It makes one heart sick to read about what these brave men passed through during that wretched winter. Yet, in spite of bitter trials and distressing times, Washington never lost faith that in the end the American cause would triumph. A beautiful story is told showing the faith of this courageous man while in the midst of these pitiful scenes at Valley Forge. One day, when friend Potts, a good Quaker farmer, was near the camp, he saw Washington on his knees, his cheeks wet with tears, praying for help and guidance. When the farmer returned to his home, he said to his wife, George Washington will succeed. George Washington will succeed. The Americans will secure their independence. What makes thee think so? Isaac, inquired his wife, I had heard him pray, Hannah, out in the woods today, and the Lord will surely hear his prayer, he will, Hannah, be may rest assured he will, many events happened between this winter at Valley Forge and the surrender of Cornwallis with all his army at Yorktown, but these we shall take up in a later chapter, Washington had led his army through the Valley of Despair, and never again while the war lasted was the sky so dark. At the close of the war Washington was glad to return to Mount Vernon and become a Virginia planter once more, but, as we shall learn further on, 
he was not permitted to spend the remainder of his days in the quiet rural life which he liked so well, for his countrymen had come to honor and trust him as their leader, and the time was not far away when they would again seek his firm and wise guidance. Some things to think about 1. What kind of army did Washington have when he took command at Cambridge? 2. What was the Declaration of Independence? And when was it signed? 3. How did Washington show his ability as a general at New York? What great mistake did General Howe make at that time? 4. What did Nathan Hale do? What do you think of him? 5. Imagine yourself with Washington in the attack upon Trenton, and tell what happened. 6. What were the results of the capture of Burwine? 7. Who was Lafayette? And what did he do for the American cause? 8. Describe as well as you can the sufferings of the Americans at Valley Forge. 9. Are you making frequent use of the map? Chapter V and ADHANAL Green and other heroes in the South we have given a rapid glance at the part which Washington took in the revolution. He, as commander-in-chief, stands first, but he would have been quick to say that much of the credit for the success in that uneven struggle was due to the able generals who carried out his plans. Standing next to Washington himself as a military leader was Nathan L. Green. As you remember, the first fighting of the revolution was in New England near Boston. Failing there, the British tried hard to get control of the Hudson River and the Middle States. As we have just seen, again they were baffled by Washington. One course remained, and that was to gain control of the southern states. Beginning in Georgia, they captured Savannah. Two years later in May 1780, they captured General Lincoln and all his force at Charleston, and in the following August badly defeated General Gates, at Camden, South Carolina, where with a new army he was now commanding in General Lincoln's place. The outlook for the Patriot cause was discouraging. One thing was certain, a skillful general must take charge of the American forces in the South, or the British would soon have everything in their own hands. Washington had great faith in General Greene and did not hesitate to appoint him for this hard task. Let us see what led the commander-in-chief to choose this New England man for duty in a post so far away. Nathan L. Green was born in Warwick, Rhode Island, in 1742. His father, who on weekdays was a blacksmith and miller, on Sundays was a Quaker preacher. Nathan L. was trained to work at the forge and in the mill and in the fields as well. He was robust and active and, like young George Washington, a leader in outdoor sports but with all his other activities he was also, like young Samuel Adams, a good student of books. We like to think of these colonial boys going to school and playing at games just as boys do now, quite unaware of the great things waiting for them to do in the world. Had they known of their future, they could have prepared in no better way than by taking their faithful part in the work and honest sport of each day as it came. Green, being ten years younger than Washington, was about 32 years old when the Boston Tea Party and those other exciting events of that time occurred. Although news did not travel so rapidly then as now, Green was soon aware that war was likely to break out at any time, and he took an active part in preparing for it. He helped to organize a company of soldiers who should be ready to fight for the American cause, and made the trip from Rhode Island to Boston to get a musket for himself. In Boston he watched with much interest the British regulars taking their drill and brought back with him not only a musket, hidden under some straw in his wagon, but also a runaway British soldier, who was to drill his company, when news of the Battle of Bunker Hill passed swiftly over the country, proving that the war had actually begun. Rhode Island raised three regiments of troops and placed Green at their head as general. He marched at once to Boston, 
and when Washington arrived to take command of the American troops, it was General Greene who had the honor of welcoming him in the name of the army. General Greene in the South at this time Greene was a man of stalwart appearance, six feet tall, strong and vigorous in body, and with a frank, intelligent face. At once he won the friendship and confidence of Washington, who always trusted him with positions calling for courage, ability, and skill. It was not long before he was Washington's right-hand man, so you can easily see why Washington chose him in 1780 as commander of the American army in the South. When General Greene reached the Carolinas, it was December, and he found the army in a pitiable condition. There was but a single blanket for the use of every three soldiers, and there was not food enough in camp to last three days. The soldiers had lost heart because of defeat. They were angry because they had not been paid, and many were sick because they had not enough to eat. They camped in rude huts made of fence rails, cornstalks, and brushwood. A weak man would have said, what can I do with an army like this? The task is impossible. To remain here is to fail. So I will resign. But General Green said nothing of the kind. He set to work with a will. For he believed that the right was on his side. By wise planning, skillful handling of the army, and hard labor, he managed, with the forces at hand, to ward off the enemy, get food supplies, and put new spirit into his men. Soon he won the confidence and love of both officers and soldiers. A story is told that shows us the sympathy he had for his men and their faith in him. On one occasion Green said to a barefoot sentinel, How you must suffer from cold. Not knowing that he spoke to his general, the soldier replied, I do not complain. I know I should have what I need if our general could get supplies. Daniel Morgan, the great rifleman it was indeed fortunate for General Green that in this time of need his men were so loyal to him. Among them was one who later became noted for his brilliant daring exploits. This was Daniel Morgan, the great rifleman. You will be interested to hear of some of his thrilling experiences. When about 19 years old, Morgan began his military career as a teamster in Braddock's army, and at the time of Braddock's defeat he did good service by bringing wounded men off the battlefield. It was about this time that he became known to Washington, who liked and trusted him. The young man was so dependable and brave that he was steadily promoted. When he was 23, he had an exciting adventure which brought him the only wound he ever received. It was during the last French war, with two other men. He was sent to carry a message to the commanding officer at Winchester. They had still about a mile to ride when a party of French and Indians who were hiding in the woods near the roadside fired upon them. Morgan's comrade fell dead instantly. He himself was so severely wounded in the neck by a musket ball that he came near fainting and believed he was going to die but he managed to cling to his horse's neck and spurred him along the forest trail. One Indian, hoping to get Morgan's scalp, ran for a time beside the horse, but when he saw that the animal was outstripping him, he gave up the chase, hurling his tomahawk with an angry yell at the fleeing man. Morgan was soon safe in the hands of friends. During the revolution his services were, in more than one critical situation, of great value to the American cause, in the campaign which ended with Burwine's defeat. For instance, his riflemen fought like heroes. General Burwine, after his surrender, exclaimed to Morgan, Sir, you command the finest regiment in the world. Indeed, it was regarded at that time as the best regiment in the American army, and this was largely due to Morgan's skill in handling his men. He made them feel as if they were one family. He was always thoughtful for their health and comfort, and he appealed to their pride but never to their fear. 
He was a very tall and strong man, with handsome features and a remarkable power to endure. His manner was quiet and refined, and his noble bearing indicated a high sense of honor. He was liked by his companions because he was always good-natured and ready for the most daring adventure. General Green made good use of this true patriot, and not long after taking command of the army he sent Morgan with 900 picked men to the westward to threaten the British outposts. General Cornwallis, in command of the British army in the south, ordered Colonel Tarleton to lead a body of soldiers against Morgan. Early in the morning of January 17, 1781, after a hard night march, Tarleton, overconfident of success, attacked Morgan at Cowpens, in the northern part of South Carolina. The Americans stood up bravely against the attack and won a brilliant victory. The British lost almost their entire force, including 600 prisoners. Cornwallis was bitterly disappointed, for his plan, undertaken in such confidence, had ended in a crushing defeat. However, gathering his forces together, he set out to march rapidly across country in pursuit of Morgan, hoping to overwhelm him and recapture the 600 British prisoners before he could join Green's army. But Morgan was too wary to be caught napping, and, suspecting that this would be Cornwallis's game, he retreated rapidly in a northeasterly direction toward that part of the army under Green. Meantime Green had heard the glorious news of the American victory at Cowpens, and he too realized that there was great danger of Morgan's falling into the hands of Cornwallis. To prevent this, and at the same time draw Cornwallis far away from his supplies at Wilmington, he decided to go to Morgan's relief, sending his army by an easier, roundabout route. He himself with a small guard rode swiftly a distance of 150 miles across the rough country and joined Morgan on the last day of January. Morgan was cleverly retreating with Cornwallis in hot pursuit. For ten days the race for life continued, with the chances in favor of Cornwallis, for his army was larger. Besides being trained and disciplined, this was a famous retreat. It covered a distance of 200 miles through the Carolinas, across three rivers whose waters, swollen by recent rains, rose rapidly after the Americans had crossed, and checked the British in their pursuit. When the last river, the Dan, was forded, the chase was so close that the rear of the retreating, 